We are concluding our very first series here at Restoration Church, a series simply called Good News. See you, Joel. Today we are going to be discussing good news for the ashamed. If you have missed any of this series so far and you want to go back and listen to any of them, you can find all these messages online. I would encourage you to do so. They kind of make this nice little package, and so you can go back and listen to all those series online. A lot of kids today, which is exciting. So the most classic example of shame within our context is a book called The Scarlet Letter. Has anybody ever read this book before? You probably all wrote, wrote ninth grade reports on this book way back in the day. It's a book set in colonial Massachusetts where a woman named Hester Prynne, thank you, Hester Prynne. I was going to say Finn, but it's not Finn, it's Prynne. Hester Prynne is caught in adultery, and she is forced to wear this scarlet A upon her chest, and she is ushered out into the middle of the colony, where everyone points their fingers and mocks her and condemns her. She has to stand there where everyone recognizes and publicly disgraces her for the sin that she is caught in. Now, no one is forced to wear red letters today within our own context. But we still shame people pretty regularly, I would say. Think of the little boy who is in the grocery uh, store, and he knocks over a jar of jam on the floor, and it shatters all over the ground. Now, he's embarrassed enough as it is, right? But then think of the mom who comes along and scolds him in the middle of the store, embarrassing him even further, and with an earshot, everyone acknowledges that all this boy has done something terribly wrong. Or think of how our news channels, you know, parade criminals on TV, and they show us their mugshots, as they talk about all the horrible things that these people have done. It's a public disgrace. And the thing is that the fear of having our faults and our wrong behaviors paraded before the world, that typically is enough for us to either stay away from doing a lot of things, or it causes us to cover up a lot of things. It causes us to conceal. It causes us to hide. It causes us to recognize, wow, I've done this horrible thing. I don't want the world to find out, so I'm going to hide it. I'm going to conceal it. There was a study done several years ago after the movie um, that is titled I Know What You Did Last Summer. You guys ever seen that movie? There's a study that was done after this movie came out. And what they did was they put these people in a room, and they brought loved ones into this room, and they simply asked them, I'm sorry, they simply told them, I know what you did. I know that thing that you did. I can't believe you did that. And then these people hooked up to heart rate monitors and blood pressure monitors. And can you imagine what happened to their heart rate and their blood pressure when their loved ones came and said, I know what you did. It spiked through the roof. The thing is that most everybody has something that they are hiding. That if it was to be found out, that if the world was to hear about this thing, that it would either create great embarrassment or great shame within their lives. Most people, if you ask them, and if they were honest, they would say, yeah, I hide something. Yeah, I conceal something. Whether it's secretive eating or stealing from work or the way you secretly think about your neighbor, yeah, we all have something that we hide. We all have something that we don't want paraded throughout the whole world. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? 
Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up the Psalm 139. We're going to be going through this psalm this morning. If you do not have a Bible, we would be happy to get you one. Does anybody need a Bible this morning in the back? Would you, would you mind? Thank you. The text reads as follows. It's on the screen if you just want to follow along that way as well. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word was on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts concerning me, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you, are, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, I do pray that you would give us insight into your word this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, for those who are hiding God and concealing and, and, and holding on to these embarrassing and shameful truths about themselves, Father, I, I pray that we, would find, that we would find comfort, Father, in you this morning. And we would find a boldness, Father, to, to confess those things and to walk into freedom this morning. Amen. So this is one of the most classic psalms. Some of you may even say this is, of all 150 psalms, this is maybe your favorite of all the psalms. We all probably know at least a portion of this. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You guys ever heard that term used before? A lot of people will put this term on picket signs as they stand outside abortion clinics. A lot of us know at least portions of this psalm, but I think what most of us fail to understand is this psalm is actually a lament. It's, it's a cry. It's a, it's a man who is deep in mourning, crying out to God, wondering why the world is the way it is. See, David, David is in deep reflection on his pride and his arrogance and his hatred and the deep sin within his heart. And in this process of deep reflection, he is cowering before God. He is cowering before a holy God because he recognizes how 
deep the sin goes in his heart. And so he wants to run and he wants to conceal. Now, we don't exactly know why he wanted to run. We don't exactly know the exact sin that he is dealing with or exactly what he is struggling through. But we know that he wants to run. We know that he wants to conceal. You guys ever been there before? You guys ever wanted to run away? You guys ever wanted to conceal the sin in your life or hide the sin in your life? Ever want to run from God because the guilt and the shame is, is just piling up on top of you? Have you ever felt guilty or ashamed that you wanted to conceal it? That, so that nobody in the whole world would know? Have you ever wanted to hide under the cover of darkness? Have you ever tried to cover up what you've done because you were afraid that someone might find out what you did? Can anybody relate with that? When my son was about three years old, we uh, got this weather reader, something my wife had actually wanted for a long time. It's like a digital weather reader, and we put it up on top of this window that looked over into our living room from our kitchen. And so my son is uh, playing on the couch behind this window, and here I am. I'm washing a pot of dishes. And what does he do? He's playing, he's playing, he's playing, and plop, the weather reader goes right into the pot full of water. And you could see his face just turn red. Oh my goodness, what have I just done? This thing that my, my mom wanted so badly, now I just ruined it. Daddy, fix it. Please, please, Daddy, fix it. He knew he had done something wrong, and he needed to fix it. He wanted to conceal his wrong. How many movies have this exact same plot line? Everybody ever seen The Sandlot before? It's a great movie, right? It's a classic. These little boys uh, don't have a baseball to play baseball with, and so what do they do? They go into their father's house, and they grab the Babe Ruth-signed baseball. And on the first hit, bang, right over the fence into the yard with the dog in it. And the dog chews up the Babe Ruth-signed baseball. And what do they do? For the whole week, they struggle to try to conceal what they have done. They hide what they have done. They, they try to make amends and make it right. All of the wrong that they have committed, they are trying to cover it up so that their dad will not find out. That's a classic movie plot line. Maybe you have co-workers who keep a bottle of cologne and mouthwash with them to conceal and hide the drinking that they do over the lunch hour. Maybe you have family members who are constantly erasing the memory on their computer because they want to cover up this porn addiction that they have. We're constantly covering up and concealing and hiding. We go to great lengths because we do not want the world to see the junk in my life. We do not want the world to see the wreck that is our lives. We put on a mask of righteousness and a cloak of righteousness to cover up who we truly are. The psalm gives us great advice, I think. And I want to walk through this psalm, but I'm actually going to start with verse 11 before we go back to verse 1. Verse 11 says this, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night all around me. Surely all of my deeds will never be exposed. David is trying to conceal his sin. He's trying to hide his sin and cover it up. He's trying to put on a false impression before his friends, right? He's trying to put on this mask of righteousness. He's diligently covered all his tracks so that no one will find out the sin that he's done. 
He's concealed himself under the cover of darkness because he is ashamed and he is embarrassed and the guilt and the shame, they are heavy upon him. But in the midst of this, David gets this realization. Man, I am an idiot, he says. I I can't hide from God. I I can conceal under darkness. Verse 12, even the darkness will not be dark to you, God. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God, what am I thinking trying to hide my sin from you? God knows every thought in my head. What am I thinking trying to think that I can conceal my sin? How foolish to think that I can hide my shame and that I can hide under the cover of darkness. Can God not see in the dark? Really? Can he not take the darkness away and make it light? All of my deeds are exposed before God. God knows me. God can search my heart. And so he says back in verse 1, You have searched me, Lord. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. God knows me. You have searched my heart, and you know me better than I know myself. When I'm trying to hide these thoughts, how foolish of me to think that I can hide these thoughts from you. You know when I sit and when I rise, you know my thoughts from afar. God, you know me so well. You know me so intimately. You know every thought in my mind and every word on my tongue before they are even spoken. You know me completely. I cannot hide from you. I cannot conceal my sin from you. I cannot run away from you. And so David realizes he cannot hide his sin from God, right? God's knowledge of him is it's beyond comprehension. It's, it's, it's beyond anything that you could even imagine God's knowledge of us. And so if I cannot hide my sin, if I cannot conceal my sin, well, maybe I can run from it. Maybe I can outrun God and God will not find me. Maybe I can outrun my shame and my guilt. Maybe if I run far enough and fast enough, no one will ever have to know what I have done. And if they do discover what I've done, it's not going to matter because I cannot be publicly disgraced if I'm that far away. Maybe I can run from my sin. David's like a child running from his parents in a lot of ways. He knows he has done something wrong. He knows the guilt and he knows the shame. And he doesn't want to suffer the punishment or the consequences. And so after my son knocked over the weather reader into the pot, he says, Daddy, please, you need to fix this. Daddy, please, do what you can to fix this. And, and after I said, Ethan, I, I might be able to fix this, but it's not going to be fixed before Mom gets home. He says, well, well if, if you can't fix it, I'm going to go hide up in my room. Man, that's an interesting response from a three-year-old, isn't it? If you cannot conceal the problem, if I cannot hide the problem, then I'm going to run from the problem. But it's also the same response that David gives. If I cannot hide my problem, maybe I can run from it. Maybe I can hide while I'm running. But even that, he realizes, is very foolish. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, I cannot flee from God. I cannot run to the mountains and hope that he will not find me. I cannot run to the ocean in hopes that he will not discover me. I cannot run to the west or to the east, to the setting sun or to the rising sun. I cannot go anywhere where God's knowledge of me will not consume me. Where can I go that God will not be there? Where can I go where my shame will not be discovered? Where can I go where my guilt will not be found out? Where can I run to where all that I have done will not be known by the world? We run because we are afraid of the consequences. Typically, that's why people run. We run because we do not want people to truly know what we have done. We run because we, tr- we do not want people to truly know who we are deep down inside. We conceal because we believe that living in secret is better than living in truth, but having that knowledge known to the world. We don't think that the world is very gracious. We think that the world, when they find out who we truly are, we think the world, when they find out truly what we have done, is going to condemn us and point the finger and judge us and parade all of our faults before all of our friends. That is why we run. That is why we conceal. We run and we conceal and we hide because we think that when God finally gets a hold of us, he's going to grab us by the neck and his strong arm of judgment is going to throw us down. But David has an epiphany in verse 10. He says, even there your hand will guide me. The hand of your right hand will make me glad. I love the next line. I can't run from you. I cannot hide from you. I cannot run. I cannot conceal. I cannot go to the east. I cannot go to the west. I cannot run away. But but when God finds me, he's going to put his hand over me. That's not how God's going to treat me when he finally gets a hold of my sin? That's not how God's going to treat me when he finally is found out that I'm a a deep, horrible sinner? You're telling me that God is going to embrace me in that? And that is the beautiful epiphany that David receives. That when God gets a hold of him, it's not to torment him in his anguish and in his guilt and in his shame, but it's rather to embrace him in love. You see, David David is in deep reflection on his sin and his guilt and his shame. And while in meditation on who he is and what he has done, he comes to this realization that God seeks us in our hiding and in our running not to condemn us, but to embrace us. And I, I don't know how many of you have been running from your sin. I don't know how many of you have tried to been concealing your sin and hiding your sin trying to do all of that you can so that the world will never find out what you have truly done. I don't know what situation you all are all in today. But if you were to let God get a hold of you, what you would experience is not condemnation, but embrace. Even though we run, God pursues us not to judge us, but to love us. And it was perhaps as Paul was reflecting on this psalm that he comes to this conclusion in Romans 8, one of the most beautiful words possibly penned in all of Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Is that a truth that you guys need to hear this morning? I can run to the heights. I can flee to the depths. I can go to the east. I can go to the rest. I can keep running, but God's love will still be there. God's embrace will still be there. I can run to the edge of the world and attempt to hide from my shame, but God's love will still be there. And so we get back to verse 11. David has come to this understanding that he cannot run from God, nor can he conceal his sin from God. And so he comes to this new realization. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, well, even there the darkness will not be dark to you, The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I cannot conceal my sin from you, O God, but why should I? Why should I conceal my sin from you? When you embrace me, it's not your strong arm of judgment that is going to come heavy down upon me. It is your embrace of love. It is your embrace of grace that will come and enfold me. Why should I conceal? Why should I hide? Why should I run? Maybe in confession, maybe in the acknowledgement of my sin, there is grace to be found. But David did have a problem. He looked at himself. He looked at his sin. He, he looked at the shame and the guilt that he experienced and felt, and he said, wow, you know, I am a, a guilty, dirty, horrible, worthless human creature. And if I see myself this way, if I see myself as, as full of sin and, and deeply, the sin goes deep down into my heart, if that's how I see myself, then why doesn't God see myself that way? Well, why would God look on me any differently? He assumed that God saw him as dirty and pathetic and unwanted and unlovable and horrible. But in verse 13, David begins to turn a corner. He stops running from his maker. He stops trying to cover up all of the sin and everything that he has done. And he discovers this truth that God is not a harsh judge ready to throw down lightning bolts. He realizes perhaps for the very first time that since his very conception as a human person, God has considered him a masterpiece. God doesn't look at him and say, you're horrible, you're filthy, You're you're dirty. You're a horrible, horrible sinner. He says, wow, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are beautiful. You are my masterpiece. Look at the great length that I've gone to to create you. God sees the guilt and the shame and the filth, and he says, you are a meticulous creation that I've poured all of my care and my concern and in my love to. You are my masterpiece. You are not worthless. You are not pathetic. You are beautiful. You are magnificent. You are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. 
You are an incredible creation. You created my inmost being, David says. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God, you do not look on me and despise me because of my many faults. You do not look on me the same way I look on myself. You do not look on me as someone to be pitied and an embarrassment. That is not the way you view me, God. You crafted me personally. You crafted me intimately. And your works are wonderful. I remember vividly when my three children were born and watching them grow inside of their mother and it is the most amazing, profound, mysterious thing that you will ever experience in life. And each one was equally as miraculous as the one before. The miracle of life is beyond amazing. I am filled with awe as a father watching my children come into this world. I'm in, I'm in awe watching a video like this. There are no words that can describe the care God puts into the development of the human person. And so you cannot look at something like this and think that anyone is worthless. That anyone is a mistake. Every human person is meticulously crafted. God looks at no one and sees them as shameful or petty and pitiful and worthless, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. This term fearfully, it's the only term, it's the only time in the entire Old Testament where this term is used. And so it's kind of hard to ex interpret exactly what David was referring to when he wrote the word fearfully, but most scholars believe that it means that God has created each person with a deep reverence and that each life is set apart as sanctified and important. Every life is holy, it is beautiful, and it is worthy of love. That is kind of what fearfully means. This term, wonderful, is often translated as astounded. It gives us the idea that this thing being described is, has an overwhelming sense of amazement. It's not just something that is cool, right? It's not just something that's really neat or really awesome. It's like an overwhelming sense of amazement comes with this. I am overwhelmed by awe. I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Restoration Church, you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made.
You are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. Please, please, please do not let guilt and shame convince you that you are a mistake or that you are worthless and that you are petty and that you are to be pitied, that you are undeserving of love. Do not let guilt and shame convince you that you are horrible and beyond saving. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so as David reflects on his own sin in light of the care and love that God poured into his creation, he has this realization in verse 17. How precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God! How vast the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake, I am still with you. God, you love me, in other words. God, you love me. I cannot comprehend the depths of your love. The love that you have for me is beyond understanding. It is beyond comprehension. I cannot even fathom how deep the love you have for me is. It's like Paul prayed in his letter to the Ephesians. He says that you, being rooted and established in love, I pray that you would have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. But that's an oxymoron. You can't do it. You cannot understand the love that surpasses knowledge. You cannot understand the love that is wide and deep and high and long. You cannot understand God's love for you because it is that deep. I am not pathetic. I am not worthless. I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. And so it's interesting, then, that the psalm continues in the way that it does. Right? David has just had this, this brilliant realization that he, doesn't no, he no longer wants to run from his sin. He no longer wants to hide. He believes that he is fearfully and wonderfully made, that he is precious and magnificent, and that God has taken meticulous care over him. But then he goes on this odd kind of rant about all the people that would dare mock and speak evil about God. And I guess it makes sense a little bit. I mean, after watching a video like that and seeing the care and the concern and the meticulous detail that God puts into every created being, to, to speak evil of God? Man, that, that's, a, that's a huge offense. That's a horrible offense to, to mock God. How dare you mock God? God is great. His love for you is so deep. How dare you mock God? And so he goes on this kind of rant. He continues in verse 19. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, one might think that David is justified in his anger toward these people who would dare mock God and speak evil of such a good creator. And so David has this realized just the extent of God's love for him, and all these people are surrounding him, mocking him, and calling God a, a, a worthless creator. And he gets angry, and he gets upset. And perhaps this hatred and this arrogance and this, this anger that he is dealing with, maybe this is the reason why he had to run in the first place. Right? He just realized that God desperately loves his creation and pursues his creation. And even that when we run, even that when we hide, God is still pursuing us. He is still searching after us, not to throw down his lightning bolts, but to embrace us in love. 
And David is really, really angry at all these people around him who are mocking such a great God of great love. You see, God doesn't look on sinners in the same way that David looks on his enemies. God doesn't look on our enemies, in other words, the same way that we look on our enemies. God doesn't mock or speak evil of his enemies. God embraces his enemies. We, in our rebellion and in our sin, are his enemies. And God, in his great love, has embraced us. God isn't standing up there saying, see this lightning bolt in my hand? That's for you. See that tornado ripping through the town? That's for all the evil in that town. See that tsunami ripping through Southeast Asia? Yeah, that's because they're such horrible people. That's not how God views his enemies. That's not how God views the rebel. God looks down on the world full of his enemies and he says, let me embrace you. Let me pursue you. Let me love you. It was David who rejected them, not God. David was the one who hated them. He was the one who had hateful thoughts towards them. David was the one who had wished them dead, not God. And so David, kind of mid-rant, right? He's, he's ranting about how horrible all these people are and that they should be dead and that how they wish that he, he, they would all die and how much he hated them. Mid-rant, he has to step back and he has to say, whoa, 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 wait, hold on. Let me take a deep breath here. Let me reflect once again on my own sinful state. Because isn't it easy to point out all the faults in everybody else? Isn't it easy to look at all of our neighbors and say, look at how they're living their life? Isn't it easy to, to look at your spouse and say, man, if she would only do something better, if he would only do something differently. But David takes this opportunity to look deep into his own heart once again. And as he's doing so, it's almost as if God is whispering in his ear. David, love your enemies the same way that I love my enemies. And so what do you do when your guilt and your sin are weighing heavily upon you? What do you do when you realize your shame? Do you run? Do you hide? Do you conceal? Or do you do what David did at this moment? He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know where my thoughts are anxious. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, for I know that when you find sin, when you find junk in my life, you will not condemn me, but you will embrace me in your arms of love. Please, God, search me. You will love me. You will comfort me. You will speak your precious thoughts over me when you search me. But David did not simply let this end with reflection, right? He says, lead me, teach me, change me, guide me in your ways and into eternal life. Oh God, as I acknowledge your love against my sin, oh God, as I acknowledge your precious thoughts regarding me against my sin, it not only calls me into repentance, but it actually begins this changing process in my heart. And it ironically empowers me to repent. It ironically empowers me to change. You see, what David had to realize was that before when God was searching him, remember the psalm starts by saying, God, you search me. But that wasn't a welcomed search. That felt like prodding and poking. God, what are you digging for in my heart? God, I, I'm fearful, God, because I, I, I know the sin and I know the shame and I don't want you in my heart, God. 
And so it's fearful, so I'm going to run and I'm going to hide. God, don't be in there. Don't, don't convict me of sin, God. Don't change me. Don't lead me to repentance. But notice the difference as David comes back around towards the end of the psalm. What does he say? God, please search me. The search is invited. He wants the search. He wants the everlasting life. He wants to live free from this burden of guilt and shame. Because when David embraces God's love for him, it is no longer God. I am fearful of you searching my heart, but God, please search me so I can be more like you in this world. And if you can relate to someone who tends to hide and conceal and run away this morning, if there are those dark corners of your own heart where you really do not want anybody poking and prodding, you really do not want the world to find out about that thing that you did, I pray that you would learn to see God not as one who is waiting to throw down lightning bolts upon you. Not as one who is standing above you, pointing the finger, condemning you, and pointing out all the faults and all the shame in your life. But one who is waiting, ready, ready for you to say, God, search me. I need you to search me. So that he can offer you a very warm embrace. I encourage you to invite God to search you this morning. And as you are searched in humility, may that search lead you to repentance. And may that search lead you to a changed life, a changed heart that is set on the path to everlasting life, as David concludes in this psalm. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect this morning. I'm going to invite Emily and Barb. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect. Where are those dark corners in your own heart this morning that are in need of searching? Not searching from a God who is going to condemn you, but searching from a God who is going to embrace you. Searching from a God who is going to love you and enfold you in his arms. I offer this opportunity for you to search the depths of your heart. And if you find those dark corners, give them to God for a thorough searching so that he might change you this morning. Father, you are a wonderful, you are so merciful towards us, God. We do not deserve your grace or your mercy, Father. We are guilty. We are guilty, Father, and yet in your great love for us, you have forgiven us and you have set us towards freedom. And so, God, may we be a changed people. God, who do not live within the shame and the guilt of all of our past wrongdoings, Father, but we live in a people who are constantly calling out, God, continue to work on my heart. God, continue to change me. God, continue to form me into a person who is made in your image, God, and doing your will in this world, a person who is full of life and abundant life overflows out of me, God. Take my hatred and turn it into love. Take my anger, God. And create kindness deep in me. Take my impatience, God, and give me stillness. Change my heart, God, and, and may you be the one to do it as you search me, God. I invite you to search me. I invite you to search us. Amen.